Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about meningitis. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com or in the infectious diseases section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's jump straight into it. Meningitis means inflammation of the meninges. And the meninges are that lining to the brain and the spinal cord that contain the cerebral spinal fluid. Inflammation is usually caused by a bacterial or a viral infection. Neisseria meningitidis is a gram-negative diplococcus bacteria. There's circular bacteria, which is why we call them cocci, and they occur in pairs, which is why we call them diplococci. Neisseria meningitidis is commonly known as meningococcus. So if you hear somebody referring to meningococcus, this is the same as Neisseria meningitidis. Meningococcal septicemia is when the meningococcal bacteria infects the bloodstream. Septicemia is infection in the bloodstream and meningococcal is the bacteria. The meningococcal bacteria is the cause of this classic non-blanching rash that everybody worries about. And this rash indicates the infection has caused something called disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, which is shortened to DIC, which causes a problem with the blood clotting and results in subcutaneous hemorrhages or bleeding under the skin. And this non-blanching rash is actually points of bleeding underneath the skin. Meningococcal meningitis is when the meningococcal bacteria is the bacteria that's infecting the meninges and the cerebral spinal fluid around the brain and the spinal cord and causing that meningitis. Bacterial meningitis is inflammation of the meninges caused by a bacterial infection. The most common cause of bacterial meningitis in children and adults is Neisseria meningitidis and Staphylococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus. In neonates, the most common cause is something called Group B Streptococcus, or GBS. And GBS is usually contracted during birth from the GBS bacteria that often live harmlessly in the mother's vagina. And these are bacteria that sit in the mother's vagina, don't cause any trouble, and then during birth, they're picked up by the newborn and cause a meningitis and a septicemia. Let's start with the presentation of meningitis because this isn't a diagnosis that you want to miss. So you need to have a very low threshold for considering this diagnosis, particularly in children. Typical symptoms of meningitis are fever, neck stiffness, vomiting, headache, photophobia, which is discomfort with bright lights, altered consciousness is quite a red flag for meningitis, and seizures are something that you just can't ignore. Where there is meningococcal septicemia, children can present with the non-blanching rash. Other causes of bacterial meningitis, such as pneumococcus, don't usually present with the non-blanching rash. So this non-blanching rash should make you think about meningococcus. Neonates and babies can present with very non-specific signs and symptoms, such as hypotonia, or reduced body tone, poor feeding, lethargy, hypothermia or low temperatures and a bulging fontanelle when you feel that anterior fontanelle on the top of the head where the sutures haven't come together yet it can be bulging due to the raised pressure inside the skull. 
For this reason, that they can present with very non-specific signs and symptoms, NICE recommend doing a lumbar puncture as part of the investigations for all children who are under one month old presenting with a fever, or one to three months old with a fever and are unwell, and then children under one years old with an unexplained fever and other features of serious illness. There are two special tests you need to be aware of that you can perform to look for meningeal irritation or meningitis. These are Koenig's test and Brudzinski's test. Koenig's tests involve lying the patient flat on their back, flexing one hip and knee to 90 degrees, and then slowly straightening the knee whilst keeping the hip flexed at 90 degrees. And this creates a slight stretch on the meninges. And where there is meningeal irritation or meningitis, it will produce spinal pain or resistance to this movement. Brudzinski's test involves lying the patient flat on their back and gently using your hand to lift their head and neck off the bed and flex their chin towards their chest. A positive test is when this causes the patient to involuntarily flex their hips and knees. So they'll start to bring their legs up. And again, this is because of irritation to the meninges. So what's the management of bacterial meningitis if you decide that somebody might have this diagnosis? Meningococcal septicemia and bacterial meningitis are medical emergencies, so they need to be treated immediately. If you're in the community, children seen in primary care with suspected meningitis and a non-blanching rash should receive an urgent stat injection, and this is intramuscular or intravenous if possible, of benzyl penicillin prior to transfer to hospital. And this is because time is so important in treating the meningococcal bacteria. Thankfully, because of the vaccination, we don't see as much meningococcal septicemia. So this isn't done as frequently as maybe it once was. But it's worth being aware of the fact that if you're in a GP practice and this is a suspected diagnosis, this treatment should be initiated while waiting for the ambulance. It's important that this doesn't delay transfer and where there's a true penicillin allergy, the transfer should be the priority rather than finding a different alternative antibiotic. If you're in hospital, then ideally the patient should have a blood culture and a lumbar puncture for cerebral spinal fluid before starting antibiotics. However, if they're acutely unwell, then antibiotics shouldn't be delayed to get these investigations done. You can send blood tests for something called meningococcal PCR if meningococcal disease is suspected, and this test is directly looking for the meningococcal DNA. Sometimes this can give a result quicker than a blood culture, depending on the local services. And this result can still be positive after the bacteria has been treated with antibiotics, because some of the DNA from the bug still sits around in the bloodstream, even after the bacteria itself has been treated. There needs to be a very low threshold for suspecting bacterial meningitis, particularly in babies and young children. And it's important to always follow the local guidelines for the necessary actions. Some typical antibiotics that might be used are in children under three months, kefataxime plus amoxicillin. And as a side note, the amoxicillin is to cover listeria, which could potentially be contracted during pregnancy from the mother. And over three months of age, Typically, keftriaxone is used. Vancomycin can be added to these regimes if there's a risk of penicillin-resistant pneumococcal infection, for example, recent foreign travel or prolonged antibiotic exposure. 
Steroids are also used in bacterial meningitis to reduce the frequency and severity of hearing loss and neurological damage. The steroid that's used is often dexamethasone, which is given four times daily for four days to children over the age of three months if the lung puncture is suggestive of bacterial meningitis. Remember that bacterial meningitis and meningococcal infection are notifiable diseases, so public health needs to be informed of all cases so they can keep track of them. Something worth remembering for your exams is a topic called post-exposure prophylaxis. And this is where people who've had significant exposure to a patient with confirmed meningococcal infections, such as meningitis or septicemia, are given treatment to try and prevent them from contracting this illness. The risk is highest to people that have had close prolonged contact within seven days prior to the onset of illness, and the risk of developing the disease decreases significantly seven days after the exposure. So if no symptoms are developed within this period, up until seven days after they were exposed, they're unlikely to develop the illness. Post-exposure prophylaxis is usually guided by public health, so take advice from them. And the usual antibiotic of choice is a single dose of ciprofloxacin, given orally. And this is one worth remembering for your exams, because it can come up in exams as a choice between which antibiotics to give. And the answer is ciprofloxacin. It should be given as soon as possible and ideally within 24 hours of the initial diagnosis in the original person. Next we need to talk about viral meningitis. The most common causes of viral meningitis are the herpes simplex virus or HSV, enterovirus and varicella zoster virus or VZV. A sample of CSF from the lumbar puncture needs to be sent for viral PCR testing to check which viruses are causing the meningitis. And viral meningitis tends to be milder than bacterial and often they only require supportive care. Acyclovir is an antiviral medication that can be used to treat suspected or confirmed herpes simplex virus meningitis. Now let's talk about a very common exam topic and that's lumbar puncture and interpreting the lumbar puncture results. A lumbar puncture involves inserting a needle in the lower back and collecting a sample of the cerebral spinal fluid from around the spinal cord. The spinal cord ends at L2, L1 vertebra level, so the needle is usually inserted in the L3, L4 intervertebral space, so that you don't strike the spinal cord with the needle, but you can still collect a good sample of CSF from this area. Samples are sent for bacterial culture, viral PCR, cell count, protein and glucose and a sample of blood glucose should be sent at the same time so that you can compare the CSF sample glucose with the blood glucose and the samples need to be sent to the lab immediately so that they don't degenerate or become inaccurate. A tom tip on interpreting the lumbar puncture results it's quite a common exam question and it's easier to think about what will happen to CSF with bacteria or viruses living in it rather than trying to just rote learn the results. It makes sense that bacteria swimming in the CSF will release proteins and they'll use up glucose. Viruses don't use glucose, but they may release a small amount of protein. The immune system will release neutrophils in response to bacteria and it will release lymphocytes in response to viruses. Therefore, if you have a bacterial infection in the CSF, 
you'll have a cloudy fluid, which will be high in protein, low in glucose, and will have lots of neutrophils. If you have a viral infection in the CSF, you'll have clear fluid with mildly raised or normal protein levels, normal glucose levels, and high white cells, which are particularly lymphocytes. Another key exam question is the complications of meningitis, and you really need to be familiar with these. A key complication of meningitis is hearing loss, and this is something really to remember for your exams. Other complications are seizures and epilepsy. They can have cognitive impairment following the infection, and they can have learning disability going forward. Another complication is memory loss. And they can have lasting focal neurological deficits like limb weakness or limb spasticity. So thanks for listening to this podcast episode on meningitis. If you found it helpful and you want notes on this topic and all other podcast episode topics, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. It's got detailed and concise notes on over 160 topics just like this. And it contains the key facts and guidelines you need to know for your medical exams. You can find all the notes for free on the Zero to Finals website, as well as videos, illustrations, questions, and a blog. And either way, I hope you tune in for the next episode, which will be on tuberculosis, or TB.